I sat down to write my two daughters a letter this week. They were both at camp. My oldest daughter is a counselor all five weeks of camp, and my youngest daughter was a camper in her cabin. So I sat down and, and uh, wrote them each a letter, and as I was writing that, I thought, you know, I, I didn't write my son a letter last week whenever he was at camp. I probably should write him a letter, too. And so I did. I, I wrote him a letter, and then I made it look like I mailed it to him. <laughs> he was very excited to get a letter. Um, I wanted him to know that I cared about him, too. But anyway, uh, letter, letter writing isn't something that a lot of people do much anymore. Uh, letter writing is, in some ways, kind of a lost art. Even at camp now, they have email. Like, you can email the camp, and they deliver these emails to our kids. You don't even have to handwrite letters to camp anymore. So a lot of, not a lot of people uh, handwrite letters. Anymore. Now, for those of you in, in the room or listening this morning, and you're like, well, a letter? What's a letter? For those of you like, who are growing up with tweets and, and posts and snap instas, whatever, whatever those things are, uh, a letter is a handwritten message. It's a form of communication where we would write out uh, our thoughts and we would communicate to another human being in the, in the written form. And a good letter has a beginning, a middle, and an end. It's like a good story. A good story and a letter, a good letter, has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And the beginning of any good letter contains a nice greeting some pleasantries, it might say, I hope that you're doing well, I hope you're having a good week at camp. The middle of a good letter contains information that you want the reader to know about, like uh, here's what's happening at home while you're at camp. Your mom decided to take karate lessons while you were away. I wrote that to Faith, by the way. She she was a little concerned about her mom, but the, uh, yes, I lied to my child. The, the, end, the end of a really good letter then contains uh, some final thoughts on what you might want the reader to think about or maybe even to do in response to the letter that you have written them. For example, you know, don't forget to put on sunscreen when you go to the lake. Make sure that you give God your best. Those are the kind of things that you might see at the end of a really good letter. A letter uh, takes longer, right? It takes a lot more intentional thought than just belching your opinion onto social media. But a letter can be beautiful. A letter can be a very meaningful form of communication. I think that's true of the letters that we have been reading that the Apostle Paul and his ministry team wrote to the believers in the ancient city of Thessalonica. And we, we learned, as we've been studying these letters, that yes, the Holy Spirit guided and inspired the authors of Scripture uh, so that what we have in our hands today, we can be confident that this is the inspired Word of God. But we also know that letters like this, they were handwritten. They were from the heart. Uh, they were from... Uh, they were written through the, the gifting and the personality um, of the authors, and certainly in this case, of, of the Apostle Paul. And so when we, 
when we read the letter, we know it's the Word of God, but we also know it's the heart of a man who loves a group of believers that were struggling, that were, uh, that were going through some really difficult persecution. And Paul cares about that in their lives, and he cares about uh, what's happening uh, to them. And so as we, as we wrap up this series today, we're going to be focusing in on the end of both of these letters, First and Second Thessalonians. Because they, uh, they overlap a lot. Uh, when you get to the end of both letters, uh, they have the same format. There's these final thoughts that Paul offers to these believers. And when you read them, if, uh, if you don't remember that this is a letter, when you read them, it almost sounds like or feels like these are these random thoughts, almost like a rapid fire of a bunch of uh, instructions that don't seem like they connect, but you have to remember this was a, a letter, and that's good form when it comes to a letter. You get to the end of a letter, and you have these final thoughts. When I was writing to my daughter, Faith, I would write things like, uh, make sure you listen to your counselors. Stay away from the stinky boys. Don't go anywhere near them. Uh, make sure you pay attention during chapel, and don't forget that I miss you. And that I love you. I can't wait to give you a hug at the end of the week. Now, they, those might seem like random uh, thoughts, but they are connected. They make sense in the context of a personal letter. And that's what the end of these letters are like, some really, really good final thoughts. So if you would, please jo join me in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Something else I want you to remember about these two letters, they were written to, originally, to a Jesus-centered church. Hopefully you've, you've noticed that about the, uh, the Thessalonian believers, that they were a Jesus-centered church. If you've, if you've been with us throughout the series, you'll remember that Paul was so relieved. He was so relieved to hear that they hadn't walked away from their faith that uh, they were willing to hang in there. They were, they were still focusing on Jesus, even when life got really, really hard. In fact, uh, the last time we were studying the letter together, we talked about confidence. Remember that? Paul said that he was confident that they would continue to put Jesus first, even when things got really, really challenging for them to do so. And so these final thoughts really are a challenge to them, to live out the characteristics of a Jesus-centered church. And I think that's important for us to understand as we, as we wrap up this series, because that's what we want to be. We want to be a Jesus-centered church. So what Paul wrote back then, I believe, is still really, really helpful to us today. As we desire to stay focused on Jesus, even... If and when it gets really, really hard to do so, even when life gets hard, even when it gets hard to be a Christian in a post-Christian world. So we're going to look at these characteristics of a Jesus-centered church from that perspective. They are characteristics of what it looks like to be a Jesus-centered church, but it's also a challenge to them and, I believe, to us today. Because that's our desire. That's who we want to be. So here we go. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. I'm going to jump into verse 12. Dear brothers and sisters, honor those who are your leaders in the Lord's work. They work hard among you and give you spiritual guidance. Show them great respect and wholehearted love 
because of their work and live peacefully with each other. One of the characteristics of a Jesus-centered church is that uh, the, the people that attend it, the people that gather together and call this home, they respect their church leaders. They appreciate them. They love them. They treat them with kindness and they esteem them. Hebrews 13, 17, it's on the screen, says, Obey your leaders and submit to their authority. They keep watch over you as men who must give an account. Obey them so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no advantage to you. Now, the instruction that we see here in Thessalonians, verses like this from Hebrews, if I'm being honest, it, uh, to say it to you, I read it, I believe it, uh, I think it's really important, but it is, feels, to communicate it back to you, feels a little self-serving to talk about it out loud from a pastor to his church. I, I believe that it's true. It's important for us to do. Uh, but then as I thought more about it, uh, even though it's kind of how it feels to say it, like listen to your leaders, essentially that's what I wrote to my daughter Faith in the letter that I wrote to her. Listen to your counselors. Make sure that you respect them. Don't make life harder for them in the cabin than it already is. That doesn't mean, I hope you don't hear all of that and say that uh, we think more highly of ourselves than we ought as leaders in the church, because we don't. This is not to say that the leaders of Grace Fellowship, the elders, the pastors, are infallible. We're not. Every leader has strengths, every leader has weaknesses, every leader has made mistakes and has experienced failure. Uh, we're human, and leadership isn't easy, especially when it comes to the church. Uh, you, I think, understand, and if you don't, I need you to understand, this is not a business. This is not an employer-employee relationship. That's not what this is. This is not even a parent-child dynamic or relationship. I think what we are experiencing as the church when it comes to uh, leaders and those who attend the church, it's, it's closer to that relationship that my two daughters experienced over this past week. They're sisters, and so they should love each other as sisters but Hannah, as a counselor, as a lead counselor in the cabin, uh, she has a position of authority. She has a position of leadership. And my younger daughter, Faith, should respect that, even though they're sisters, should respect her position of authority and leadership, not make life difficult for her in the cabin with a bad attitude or bad behavior when she's asked to take a shower, go take a shower. And a Jesus-centered church doesn't make life more difficult for the leaders by being a toad. And that leads to the next characteristic. If you go to verse 14, it says, Brothers and sisters, we urge you to warn those who are lazy. Now pause on verse 14 and go to the second letter, chapter 3, because this idea of warning those who are lazy lazy or idle continues and is expanded in the second letter starting in verse 6 of chapter 3. And now, dear brothers and sisters, we give you this command in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Stay away from all believers who live idle lives. And don't follow the tradition they received from us. For you know that you ought to imitate us. We were not idle when we were with you. We never accepted food from anyone without paying for it. We worked hard day and night so we would not be a burden to any of you. We certainly had the right to ask you to feed us, but we wanted to give you a good example to follow. Even while we were with you, we gave you this command. Those unwilling to work will not get to eat. Yet we hear that some of you are living idle lives, refusing to work and meddling in other people's business. We command such people and urge them in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and work to earn their own living. As for the rest of you, dear brothers and sisters, never get tired of doing good. I'll phrase it this way, a Jesus-centered church deals with the toads. And I want you to notice this is more than just an instruction to people in the church to not be lazy, unruly, busybodies. It is that, but it goes beyond that. It is an instruction to the church to hold accountable those who are being lazy and unruly and busybodies. When we act like toads, we should hold each other accountable. Now, the specific problem that Paul is addressing here is laziness. They weren't working. Some of them were not working, and they were expecting other people to take care of them. And the challenge here was to hold the lazy, unruly, busybodies accountable by not just giving them a handout. Essentially, what was happening, by giving them a handout, they were condoning their laziness. And Paul says, you can't do that. Don't do that. Holding each other accountable, of course, isn't just about laziness. There are other, uh, there are other sins that we should uh, hold each other accountable for. In fact, uh, there's another example in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. You don't have to turn there, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul tells that church that they needed to deal with the sin of this one man who was sleeping with, having sexual relations with his stepmom. And they just acted like it was okay. Nobody was willing to confront this man about it. And uh, in fact, some of them thought that they were, they were being very grace-filled in, in not uh, confronting this man. Paul says, no, you, you've got to confront this man about his sin. Don't ignore it. Don't, uh, don't fall into some progressive liberal form of tolerance. In fact, in chapter 5, read this on the screen. Paul writes, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked man from among you. You need to deal with the sin. Now, I also want to say this, just as a caution. This is not a rally cry to the self-righteous. This is not a rally cry to the fault finders to go around looking for inconsistency or shortcomings in other people. It's not what this is about. It's not the heart or the tone of this. In fact, Galatians 6.1 says, Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. 
But watch yourself because you also may be tempted. You read that and it's pretty clear that humility, love, and grace, spiritual maturity, these are all really, really important things that we need to have when we go and have those hard conversations with people that we care about. Jesus gave us some parameters for dealing with the sin in the lives of other people in Matthew 18. If you're not familiar with it, Write that reference down, Matthew 18. Uh, Jesus said, if someone sins against you, go and deal with that, with that person. Go directly to that person and have that hard conversation. And if, and if they refuse to make things right, then take someone else with you. And if that doesn't work, then take it to the church. There are these steps. And, and maybe the church has to get involved like they did in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. But dealing with sin... In our own lives, is hard enough. Would you agree? I mean, it's hard enough to deal with our own sin. When it comes to dealing with the sin of other people, it's even harder yet. It can be really awkward and difficult because some people hate confrontation. They will avoid it at all costs, even when they shouldn't. Some people have no fear of confrontation, and so they don't always check their tone they don't always check their heart motive, and they just kind of let it fly. And they might be dead on right, but the way they come across is dead on wrong. Some people turn grace into permissive blindness. Some people toss grace aside and just go right to harsh condescension. Neither one of those are good. So it's hard, and I think the key to getting this right is found in our relationships. The more that we invest in our relationships, and you understand that's a two-way thing. That's not just a one-way street. That's two people investing in a relationship. The more we do that, the more we care about each other's hearts. The more we build trust. And when we've got trust and love in our relationship, then those hard conversations, I'm not saying they're easier, but they're a lot more meaningful. A Jesus-centered church is willing to deal with sin, and that's why I think this next thought is so important. So he says at the beginning of verse 14, warn those who are lazy, but then he goes on to say in the rest of 14, encourage those who are timid. Take tender care of those who are weak. Be patient with everyone. See that no one pays back evil for evil, but always tries to do good to each other and to all people. A Jesus-centered church is one where the, where the people are filled with love and grace, even towards those who may require a little extra love and grace. You see the people that he's talking about, the timid, those who are weak, be patient with people even when that's hard. And I think this is the beauty of the church. You know, we're sitting in a room full of people that are different. We're sitting in a room of, of uh, mixed with outgoing people and introverts. A room that is mixed with risk takers and chicken littles. We're sitting in a room mixed with those who have a lot of financial means and those who do not have a lot of financial means. We're in a room with those who are athletic and physically attractive and intellectually gifted. 
And we're in the same room with those who are somewhere south of a 10 in those areas. We are a, a, a church of different generations, different life experiences, different stages in our spiritual growth, different preferences. Some people are just different. How does this work? How in the world is this drawer of mismatched socks ever supposed to get along? This works when we live out the gospel. That's how it works. When we choose to live out the gospel, when we remember that despite all of our differences, we have this one thing that unites us, this one thing in common, that we are all sinners that we all needed to put our faith and trust in the grace of God through faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. We all needed the cross. We all needed Jesus' sacrifice on the cross to forgive us of sins. We all needed Him and His Spirit to make us right with God. We need the power of His resurrection to change us from the inside out. We all need that. We all need to be grateful Every day that God's mercies are new every morning. The gospel of Jesus Christ is what connects us. We are all the body of Christ. There are different parts, there are different gifts, there are different functions, but one body. If you hold your finger in Thessalonians and go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, that's how how Paul describes our relationship with one another as we are connected together to Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, jump into verse 12, the human body has many parts, but the many parts make up one whole body. So it is with the body of Christ. Some of us are Jews, some of us are Gentiles, some are slaves and some are free, right? And our differences are different than those but we're different. What is it that connects us? What is it that unites us? It says, we have all been baptized into one body by one spirit, and we all share the same Holy Spirit. That's what unites us and connects us. Yes, the body has many different parts, not just one part. If the foot says, I'm not part of the body because I'm not a hand, that doesn't make it any less a part of the body. If the ear says, I'm not part of the body because I'm an eye, would that make it any less part of the body? If the whole body were an eye, how would you hear? If your whole body were an ear, how would you smell anything? It's a valid point. But our bodies have many parts, and God has put each part just where He wants it. How strange a body would be if it had only one part. Yes, there are many parts, but only one body. The eye can never say to the hand, I don't need you. The head can't say to the feet, I don't need you. In fact, some parts of the body that seem weakest, seem least important, are actually the most necessary. And the parts we regard as less honorable are those that we clothe with the greatest care. So we carefully protect those parts that should not be seen, while the more honorable parts do not require this special care. So God has put the body together such that extra honor and care are given to those parts that have less dignity. This makes for harmony among the members so that all the members care for each other. If one part suffers, all the parts suffer with it. If one part is honored, all 
the parts are glad. All of you together are Christ's body, and each of you has a part of it. It's a beautiful picture. A Jesus-centered church is filled with love and grace, especially towards those who may require a little extra love and grace. And I think that sets us up for the next characteristic. If you go back to 1 Thessalonians 5.16, always be joyful, never stop praying, be thankful in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you who belong to Christ. A Jesus-centered church isn't just one where uh, we show extra love and grace towards one another. It's also about what's going on in our own hearts. And here we see that a a Jesus-centered church is full of people who are joyful. It's full of people who are thankful in all circumstances. And it's a pretty straightforward instruction. I don't think I really need to expand much on what those words mean. It's not always easy to live out. Like when building projects become stress manufacturers, when people that we really care about get sick when they die when we lose a job when when all of our appliances get together and have a secret meeting and decide they're all going to die the same week when you get uh you finally pay off your car and then a month later it won't pass inspection when the person that you trusted breaks that trust disappointment Heartache, sadness, it's part of living in a broken world. I don't think that the devil goes around hiding our keys and breaking our water heaters and kicking over trusses. I don't, I don't think that's how it works. But I do think, and I'm pretty confident, that the enemy loves it when the result of those things in our lives causes us to doubt the goodness of God. I think the enemy loves it when those kind of things in life causes us frustration and anxiety and and causes dissension and and breaks up unity and love among believers. I think think he loves that. I think the devil loves it when he can convince Christians to give up doing hard things. Here's what I know about myself. What I know about myself is I don't have it in me to always be joyful and to immediately be thankful in all circumstances. It's not in me. I desperately need God's help to be the person He's calling me to be. I'm guessing I'm not the only one. I think the key to turning disappointment and and heartbreak and sadness into joy and gratitude like we're called to do so. You see, it says this is the will of God. It's not just a suggestion, be a nice person, be a happy person all the time. The will of God is that we would be joyful and, and thankful in all circumstances. That's got some weight to it. That's got some seriousness to it. I don't have it in me. I need God's help. I'm guessing you're in that same boat. It's not found in our own strength. And I think that's where we go in these next verses. Watch this. 
It says in verse 17, never stop praying, right? Skip down to verse 19. Do not stifle the Holy Spirit. Do not scoff at prophecies, but test everything that's said. Hold on to what's good. Stay away from every kind of evil. Now may the God of peace make you holy in every way. Who changes your heart? Who changes my heart? God does. May your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless. Well, how's that going to happen? It's not going to happen through my strength or yours. We go back to may the God of peace do this for you until our Lord Jesus Christ comes again. You know what happens then, right? When Jesus comes back, we get a new body. We get, a, we get the sin nature finally free from the sin nature. That happens when Jesus comes back. Look at verse 24. Just in case you missed it in verse 23, verse 24, God will make this happen. Well, praise the Lord. For he who calls you is faithful. I'm not. And guess what? You're not. God is. God will make it happen. For he who calls you is faithful. A Jesus-centered church is full of people who pray continually. Jesus-centered church is full of people who rely on the Holy Spirit to help us do the right thing, to think the right thing, to say the right thing. We can't be the person, we can't be the church that God is calling us to be without His help. You might be a toe, you might be an eye. Wherever you fall in the body of Christ, it's your responsibility to the rest of the body to make sure that you are continually in prayer, to make sure that you are relying on the Holy Spirit every day. That's your responsibility, not just to yourself as a follower of Christ. It's your responsibility to the rest of the people in this room. If we're going to have a Jesus-centered church, every one of us are going to need to rely on the Holy Spirit to keep changing us, to help us do, say, think the right thing. Not just about you. It's about the other people that are sitting in this room right now. That leads to this. Verse 24 says, God will make it happen. He who calls you is faithful. And we're going to add to that the final thought that we see in the second letter, chapter 3, verses 1 to 3. Finally, dear brothers and sisters, we ask that you pray for us. Pray the Lord's message will spread rapidly and be honored wherever it goes, just as it was when it came with you or came to you. Pray, too, that we'll be rescued from wicked and evil people. Not everyone's a believer. Here's the key, verse 3, but the Lord is faithful, and He will strengthen you. He will guard you from the evil one. A Jesus-centered church is full of people that trust in the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. I think it's just an amazing, wonderful way to end a letter. No matter what you are facing today, no matter what you're going to face this week, remember that Jesus is faithful. 
maybe you checked out for the, the, the whole beginning part of this message. At least leave with that. Would you at least leave with that? That Jesus is faithful. He's faithful to save our souls from sin and hell when we trust Him. And He's faithful to help us face the challenges of everyday life when we trust Him. And the more of us who trust in the faithfulness of God, the more Jesus-centered our church will be. You understand that connection, right? If it's just like the pastor and like two other people that are trusting in the faithfulness of God, we're not going to be a Jesus-centered church. We're not going to be a powerful church, spiritually speaking, if people aren't praying. We're not going to be who God's calling us to be if we are not relying on the Holy Spirit collectively to help change our hearts. When I write my children letters, whether they're at camp or down the hall at my house, when I write them letters, I want them to know that I love them. And I want them to know that my greatest desire as a dad is to see them live a Jesus-centered life. That's what I want most for them. And I think what Paul wrote to the believers in Thessalonica, I think it communicates that same love. I think it communicates that same desire. Not just his, but God's. Life for the people in Thessalonica was hard. And this letter, these two letters, remind them of God's love, They remind them of God's compassion and grace, and it's a challenge. It's a challenge to continue living a Jesus-centered life, to continue being a Jesus-centered church, even when it's really hard to do that. If I were writing you, my church family, a letter, I would end it by telling you how much I love you. And not just because that's how you're supposed to, uh, to end a letter. I really, I really do mean that. And I, I need you to understand something when I say it. Because you hear that, yeah, you're the preacher. You're supposed to love people, whatever. I want you to hear and understand the weight of what I'm trying to communicate to you when I say that I genuinely love you. I didn't get to pick you as my church family. Do you get that? This is not a business relationship. We're not an employer-employee relationship. It's not a parent-child relationship, and it's not a sports relationship either. And what I mean by that is this. If you want a, a different starting pitcher, you can go to a different team, right? It's as easy as that. But there's no preseason draft. There's no mid-season trade on the players. You show up. Some of you play really well. Some of you stand out there in right field and you're picking dandelions, your nose or whatever. Some of you won't get out of the dugout. That's just how it is. Now, 
Listen, don't take the metaphor farther than I'm intending it. I'm not saying I wish there were a preseason draft or a midseason trade. I'm just saying I didn't get to pick who would be or who would not be part of my church family. It's not how it works. And I need you to know that so that you understand when I say that I genuinely and deeply love you, it's not because you are the greatest collection of Christians since the history of Christianity. I love you because Jesus loves you, because Jesus died for you. I love you because I genuinely see you as my church family. I love you because God said I have to. Some days. If I were were writing you a letter, I would want you to know that I love you. And I would want you to know that my greatest desire as a pastor is to see you live a Jesus-centered life. That's what I want for every one of you. That's what I... And by God's grace, as a pastor, I want nothing more than to be able to have the privilege, the honor of leading, in some way, a Jesus-centered church. And by God's grace, I believe that's where we are. I believe that's who we are. And by God's grace, that's who we will remain. But that requires all of us to pursue the same thing. It can't just be me. It can't just be the elders. It can't just be one or two Christians in the room that want what Jesus wants. If we're going to be the church that God's called us to be, if we're going to be a Jesus-centered church, we've all got to be moving in that direction. We've all got to want to help people meet Jesus. We've all got to want to help people learn how to follow Jesus and share Jesus so that we can all be living a Jesus-centered life. I hope you'll continue to take that journey together.